If you listen to the Van City podcast on a regular or even semi-regular basis, do us a favor and go to vancity.church/survey and fill out a very brief anonymous questionnaire. Thanks a lot. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is part 59 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. With Jesus now openly disclosing to his disciples that he is en route to suffering and death, they are filled with questions about the coming kingdom of God. With Jesus gone, who will be installed to rule? Who will be greatest? To answer, Jesus must first re-architect their entire understanding of greatness from the ground up. Chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel continues in a trio of teachings about, of all things, love, which seems fitting, you know, given that despite being history's most controversial and divisive figure, Jesus is easily most known for his teachings about love. It's his thing. Everyone knows this from Southern fundamentalists to Hollywood liberals, from New Age philosophers to seminary professors. If you ask the average person on the street, what are Jesus, what's at the core of Jesus' teachings, most of them would probably say love. And the thing is, they're all right. That is Jesus' thing, right? Ask, ask Jesus himself what the most important commandment in this entire library of writings that we call the Bible, and he will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's twice with the love. You ask him for one great commandment, he gives you two, they're both love. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Love, twice. The Bible's most famous verse, John 3, 16, boldly proclaims that the reason God sent Jesus in the first place was that he so loved the world. So on this, nearly everyone agrees. The thing that we disagree on is what love means. So for me personally, I love Godzilla and I love my children. You know, I love literature, and I love the television program Wife Swap. <laughs> Have you ever seen this thing? It's the apex of television programming. I rarely get to see it every few years. <laughs> it seems like whenever I'm in a hotel and start changing channels, there it is. And then Abby's immediately like, no, no Wife Swap. It's the same thing every time. That's the beauty of it. They found the recipe, and they stuck with it. Um, so it's more than, love is more than an emotional disposition. In other words, it's more than a feeling that I nurture for someone or something. It's also a state of being that compels actions and behavior. So I love my wife, Abby, by cleaning the house on a Sunday morning while she has time to herself at a coffee shop somewhere. And I know that she receives my love in this way. And I love my kids by giving them my time and attention, playing Make-believe lately is the thing with this tiny koala, which is apparently the father figure in this exchange, and Isla, who's three now, pretends that a, a tiny horse is the baby, and it's mind-numbing. <laughs> but I love her in this way, and if you set it down for a second, she grabs it and hands it back to you. No, keep pretending. So it's, that's a way that I love my kids. It's not always overtly happy stuff. I love my kids also by correcting them or even in some cases punishing them. I love them by not letting them have their own way in certain situations. Um, it works the same way with adults. My friend Cameron, who was just up here, he has loved me in the past by confronting me. And I thought of one instance where on an afternoon, 
he confronted me about the way that my negativity, my propensity toward negativity became sinful one evening when we were together and I started complaining about something and he called me on it. He said, hey, listen, this was not like Jesus and you, you, you know, I know that you want to do better than this. So he loved me by calling me to the high standard of Jesus. We love people with parties and we love people with interventions. We love people with gifts and we love people in some instances with critiques. We love people with time together, and we love them with time apart. It varies from person to person, relationship to relationship, situation to situation, season to season. But there must be some objective rubric to Jesus' idea of love. If love was, after all, his big commandment, the reason for which God sent him in the first place, the reason, or that reason itself, love can't be entirely subjective and ambiguous. And it isn't. Jesus actually speaks at length and in detail about the kind of love that he commands. Beginning with the conclusion of Matthew 17, we begin to learn about what commentators call the three self-denials of love. So last week, if you were here, Cam talked about this weird story where Peter, or Jesus tells Peter to find money in a fish's mouth. Um, it's, it's a strange little anecdote with lots of layers, but one of them is in this exchange where Jesus tells Peter, like, hey, listen, go get this money so that we may not cause offense. In other words, Jesus was not obligated to pay the temple tax. He says so much directly, but he decided to consider the other in the situation, deliberately laying his freedom aside. So for Jesus, love often limits its freedom. This is the flexibility of love. And in that story, the principle of love was a consideration for those who are outside of the... Oh, jeez, I'm on a mission to knock over. <laughs> I'm going to stay stationary. On a, on a Jesus, um, the principle of love was for someone who's not even within the community of Jesus. It was for people outside of the disciple group, Jesus' innermost circle. Now we're going to read about how to love those inside the community of Jesus. And Matthew wants us to read tonight's story right out of the previous one. So let's read from Matthew 18, beginning with the first verse. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? So Matthew begins with at that time, meaning just as the previous story was wrapping up, this one is already beginning. And in tonight's text, Jesus is speaking to those in his innermost circle. He's inviting them to re-architect their understanding of greatness. Because in the mind of Jesus, love redirects its ambition. This is the humility of love. In his commentary on Matthew, Dale Bruner writes this, the main enemy within is the desire to be prominent. So maybe it seems weird that Matthew follows the whole coin in the fish's mouth with this scene of Jesus' disciples out of nowhere suddenly saying, hey, hey, listen, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? But really, it's been a question hovering over the entire story for a while now. Think about it. Nearly Everything Jesus has been teaching has run entirely against the grain of what his disciples expected, especially from the man they now believe to be the long-awaited king of Israel. This king, or the Messiah, the anointed one, he has just recently been telling them, his disciples, that his plan is to go back to Jerusalem, suffer and die, 
rather than launch an uprising against Rome. So that's a new one. That's the first in the history of anyone who aspires to be a Messiah or a king to plan to die instead of take the throne. And Jesus has just declared that Peter, one of his closest friends, his apprentices, this guy is going to be the foundation on which Jesus is going to build the entire community of church. The entire foundation of the church is going to be this dude, and we're still here doing it, so obviously it worked in some sense. But then in the very next story, when Peter... Peter understandably attempts to dissuade Jesus from his whole plan to suffer and die. Jesus calls Peter Satan. He was just the rock, the foundation of the church, and now he's Satan. So imagine you're a first century apprentice of Jesus, and at first you're like following around this fascinating Jewish rabbi. You're learning his teachings as one does, student-teacher relationship. You're learning his way of life. But then slowly, over years now, you start to become convinced a little at first, and then over time entirely convinced that this teacher, wait a minute, he's not just a teacher. Israel's been waiting on a promised king to inaugurate a kingdom that would never end and when goodness and justice would finally reign over a people who had known evil and injustice, both as perpetrators and as victims. And this Jesus, your teacher, your rabbi, you start to realize this is the guy. This is the guy that Israel's been waiting for for centuries, the guy promised all the way back in Genesis. But as soon as the idea starts to come into focus, the king is already talking about dying. And the king tells your friend Peter that he's going to play some special role in the new kingdom. Peter is going to be the rock, the foundation on which Jesus will build the church. But then he's telling Peter that Peter doesn't even understand what's going on. Get behind me, Satan. So the disciples are starting to think like, well, what the heck? The plan is to head to Jerusalem, the city where it was believed that the Messiah would be revealed to the world. But Jesus says that his plan is to go to Jerusalem to die. So the disciples are like, is this the kingdom or not? How the heck does it work? Who's going to be in charge? If you're not going to be here, who's going to help run the thing? Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And these were questions in the Jewish mind anyway, aside from the disciples, because of passages throughout the Hebrew scriptures like this one. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Because of passages like this, this is an idea that permeates the Hebrew Scriptures. Many believe that right living, righteousness, ensured greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Whoever lives a correct life, whoever is upright, righteous. Others believe that those who taught the scriptures or the Mishnah, which is another collection of Jewish teachings, they would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Others thought, well, maybe it's martyrs who would be on top in the kingdom of heaven. So this is not like a completely bizarre question out of nowhere. And they're not, they're not actually murmuring amongst themselves in the story. They just come out and ask their teacher point blank a reasonable question that was prevalent in Jewish consciousness. And watch, he gives them a very honest answer. Look down at verse 2. All that was verse 1, by the way. Now, verse 2. Jesus called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're like me, you read this as beautiful and sentimental, and it is beautiful, but maybe you read into it the innocence of children or their dependence on caregivers. But really, uh, the innocence of children is kind of over with as soon as they can see more than a few feet in front of them, which I'm told happens fairly quickly. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas points out, often children are assumed to have an innocence that adults lack. 
This kind of speculation, however, can result in sentimental versions of Jesus' words that betray the hardness of the kingdom. There's nothing sentimental about the demands that Jesus places on those able to receive this child. So the idea is that children aren't really all that innocent. Uh, they learn to weigh consequences in order to be selective in their bad decision-making prowess. And they're pretty crafty at it from an early age. We actually do the same thing as adults, hopefully a little more reasonably. At least I do anyway. So I have uh, small children and an additional full-time job. So when I want to do the types of things that are optimal to do without small children in tow, you have one of two options. You have ba you know, babysitters, or you do it after the kids are asleep or before they wake up in the morning. So babysitters are complicated. They're hard to come by. Most of the time, if I want to go like, to the movies or watch a movie at home one evening or spend some time writing or reading at length for a long stretch, whatever it might be, you do all that after the kids are asleep. That's when you get stuff done in the world. Now, I have other adult friends that want to sleep for some reason. It's so frustrating. I hate sleep. If I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't. I mean, I enjoy it when it's happening, I guess, but it's an inconvenience in my life. So when I try to convince my friend uh, Tab over here, when I try to convince Tab to come to, this happens fairly often, come to a movie with me, he's like, absolutely, what time? I'm like, okay, hear me out. Movie starts at 11, but we'll be home in bed by 2. It'll be totally fine. And he'll sometimes decline because he has to work in the morning or something like that. He needs sleep. Some weird. But anyway, not always because Tab knows every now and then he knows what I know, which is sometimes the price of having fun with friends, going to see a movie, is you have to be tired the next day. That's how it works. Pay the piper if you want to have a good time. So kids do this with, like, deliberate disobedience. They're like, well... Okay, punishment, this, all right, this, this one time, you know, or whatever. So the other, the other night, uh, Hannah and Cameron were over at my house. Kids are all running around playing in our backyard. And their daughter, Posey, who's fully dressed, uh, decides to climb into a kiddie pool, which is out there on the ground. She just sits in it, you know, with all her clothes on and everything. So they get her out of the water. It's a whole thing. They're like, no, no more kiddie pool. You're dressed. What are you thinking? Your clothes are wet. You know, it makes no sense. It was a whole thing. And then seconds later, she just climbed right back into the pool. Now, this continues, I don't know, four or five <laughs> exchanges until Hannah gives Posey the ultimatum. You know, she's like, look, if you touch the water one more time, you know, this, these are the ramifications. We're out of here, all that stuff. So Posey agrees. It seems like there's some level of recognition. She's like, I got it. Fine. She flees the scene. They play together for a moment. And then Hannah seems like a bout of curiosity just flickers in her mind. So she stands up and kind of walks to the corner of the house and looks around it. And there's Posey with like her hands in the water, just splashing and looking right at Hannah like this. So she knew what the heck she was doing. And she was like, I need to touch this water and I'm willing to pay the cop, pay the piper. So all that to say, <laughs> kids have elements of innocence to them sometimes, but innocent in general. Eh. And anyway, in the first century, when Jesus was teaching, no one thought of small children as primarily pure or innocent. So it's unlikely that Jesus was using them to make an important point by calling out traits that no one believed that they had in the first place. In fact, in the first century, small children had no status at all. They were at the very bottom rungs of the social ladder. In a culture, our culture, that uses children as things like social media bragging trophies, it's hard for us to understand a concept where children were to be seen and not heard at best. Uh, in our culture, kids become competition or kids rule our lives or they steer our decision-making. Not always, but often. They overshadow our social lives and careers. We pose them for phony photographs to garner acclaim for ourselves. 
But to Jesus' audience, children were to be seen and not heard. They weren't innocent. They weren't noteworthy. They weren't precious. They weren't special, which sounds mean to us, but it's actually these qualities, um, not precious, not special, not noteworthy. It's these qualities that Jesus is highlighting while he uses children as an example of greatness. Bruner adds this, It's not so much the child's subjective innocence or purity that is in view as it is the child's objective smallness and low status. The child, in the opinion of Jesus' culture, had to limit itself to listening and obeying. R.T. France agrees. He writes this, The instruction to become like children is not about adopting some supposed ethical characteristic of children in general, innocence, humility, receptiveness, trustfulness, or the like, but about accepting for oneself a position in the social scale which is like that of children, that is, as the lowest in the hierarchy of authority and decision-making, those subject to and dependent on adults. So in other words, the idea that uh, children would somehow... <laughs> I'm having, you guys can't see it, but there's like a a very futuristic glitching thing that's going on on this iPad. And since I have a, a deficit of attention in the dis- form of a disorder, I was like, I think I'm going to try to run with it for a second. But I was like, oh, man. And now I'm trying to read it and everything. But we'll work it out. You guys are going to be fine. Just bear with me for a second. So the idea is not the, the innocence of children, but the status of children. And in the idea of, it, this was not something that Jesus had to somehow sell or convince to an audience. It was something that they all took for granted. Meaning, um, if we, we love to import our thoughts about kids into the analogy, it's honestly, I mean, it, at least it is for me, really hard to read the analogy and not think about the way that I think about children. And I like kids, and I think the kids are often sweet and cute and all that kind of thing. But in order to actually grasp at what Jesus is getting at, we have to take the model on his terms, not ours, meaning we may think the analogy continues to work when we think of kids as sweet and hapless and precious to their parents, but Jesus intended to highlight their lowliness. He's not inviting his disciples to precious innocence. He's inviting them to low status, to not expect or demand first place, to not expect or demand their own way or acclaim or prestige or affluence, but to be satisfied with low position. And that doesn't mean this is the only dimension of childlikeness that Jesus had in mind. Scholars suspect Jesus intended for us to consider the way a child is not only lowly in status, but is also obliviously contented with their lowliness. So sure, kids are often selfish and they want to do things that bigger kids can do. They want first place and all that. They argue with one another. But contrasted against adults, they are blissfully unaware of the developed quest for significance. So a child is not only willing to be given what it needs, they take their own dependence for granted. My kid, he often wants to make his own cereal from time to time or something like that, but it's beyond him to conceive of a world in which he acquires his own groceries and he does his own meal planning and he figures out what he's going to eat that night and then he decides what time it's going to be and he serves it up for himself and all that kind of thing. And that's the idea that Jesus is communicating here, that it's not just that we would be contented with low status, but that we would be contented on a life where low status is a given. And that dependence is not a sentimental, oh, well, I depend on the Lord for what I need, but that we realize that there are things that we are entirely incapable of unless God does them for us. Man, I really wish. Next, next week, I'm going to project this onto here as well. 
so that you, can guys, you guys can enjoy the glitching and everything. It doesn't do much when I try to describe it to you, but trust me, it's really interesting. Or I'll just, you know, work on my focus and all that. So uh, all that to say, the disciples come to Jesus. They're often confusing and polarizing rabbi. We should kind of give them a break for that at this point. And they ask him to comment on a common question. It's not like this is like really rude and out of nowhere. It's like, hey, people want to know how the social hierarchy works in the age to come. You're starting to talk like you're not even going to be here. How's it going to work? And in the age to come, when Israel is restored by God through the Messiah, who's going to share in his glory? Who's going to help him run things? How's that going to work if you're not here? Will it be the people who kept the Torah rigorously, the righteous? Will it be the people who taught the, fer- the Torah with fervor, the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Will it people be the people who died as martyrs for the cause of God? And Jesus looks around, sees a kid somehow, I don't know, <laughs> and whose presence at this point, remember, would be unwelcome in adult conversation. And Jesus says, here, you want to know what greatness is like? You should look to this child. People who are like this, unwelcome, unwanted, low status, this is greatness in the kingdom of God. And the most shocking element of the whole thing is easy to overlook. Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, they asked him about a status question. He's telling them, forget greatness. You won't even make it in unless you take on the low status and utter dependence of a child. You can't even find or access the kingdom with misplaced ambition. It's not just a matter of adjusting your idea of greatness. It has to be destroyed and rebuilt from the ground up against commonly held ideas about that very thing. And our culture is no different. We marvel at celebrities. We envy the luxurious fabrications of social media. We reach for the gratifying achievement, the better story, the better connections. I wish I could tell you I was better for much of my adult life. I have been preoccupied with finding some way to make myself matter, not to other people per se, but to myself or even to God. It's a preoccupation with ambition rather than a submission to smallness. And I think things like, well, I don't feel satisfied with myself if I write more books or if I write more music. If I do something, then I will matter to myself and therefore I will matter to God. And this very conundrum bled into the early church and it preoccupies much writing in the New Testament. And it goes on to this very day when I attend seminary classes with other pastors, or I visit conferences, there are personalities that rove through the crowd sniffing for status. And they start talking to you, and they ask questions that are really in disguise, things like, do you have a megachurch, or do you have a book deal, or do you have a million followers on Instagram? And when they deduce that the answer to all three is no, they're like, hey, it was nice talking to you, please excuse me, and they go find someone else more with more status. Nearly all human beings want there to be something more to all this. That much is innate to our very being and designed, I would argue, by God. But the brokenness common to humanity twists and corrupts that hope into a selfish ambition to achieve greatness in of and for ourselves. And Jesus says, not only will this type of greatness not be uh, uh, appropriate or even recognized in the kingdom, it won't be there at all. And it's Jesus, so he's not done freaking people out. Let's keep reading. In verse 5, Jesus continues this line of thinking on becoming like kids by saying, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
And remember, Jesus is teaching his apprentices his way of life. These are not abstract teachings or ideas for hypotheticals or for the hypothetically enlightened. Jesus is teaching his students what he does, how he thinks, and how he lives. So there's a challenge here. If you can't imagine becoming like this little child, no status, no prestige, you've got a serious problem because Jesus himself will be without status or prestige. He will be humiliated, he will suffer, and he will die. And because of all this, he will be exalted and crowned king. Now, they don't realize this yet, but they will. So it's not enough to learn an entirely new paradigm of greatness. Disciples of Jesus are to extend that paradigm of greatness to those in low status, the lowest status. In other words, it is the honor of a disciple of Jesus to live as those with low status, And it is the duty of a disciple of Jesus to regard those of low status with honor. When you do this, you welcome Jesus himself. Or another way of putting that is that you welcome his way of life. You welcome the kingdom of God. And there's both a literal and figurative sense to what Jesus is saying. On this much, scholars seem to agree, meaning they argue that he's actually saying whoever welcomes little children in the specific and literal sense welcomes him. And that would be anyone who adopts children or those who do foster care or those who become spiritual mothers and fathers to children. They welcome Jesus. That's some of you here tonight. So hear that. When you welcome little children, you welcome Jesus. The king himself said so. Well done. But it's also a doubly figurative statement, broad enough to include any and all people of lowly status. And that would be, in our uh, culture, people like the elderly or infirm, the mentally ill, those living on the streets, addicts, criminals, the annoying, the uncool, those with no followers, those with no prestige, those with no fashion sense, or whatever it is that you don't like. Anyone insignificant or ignored or unwanted or undesirable, welcome them, Jesus says. And he asks us to do this in his name, which means out of devotion to Jesus, welcome them. Or another way of putting that is because of what Jesus means to you, do this for him. And then Jesus gets intense. So brace yourself. Here comes one of the most notorious sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. Look down at verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus takes hurting the faith of other people very seriously. And notice Jesus doesn't provide any nuance to how one may or may not hurt the faith of another person. It could be through phoniness or hypocrisy is the thing that comes immediately to mind. It could be outright speaking against the truth of Jesus. And if you're like me, you kind of recoil at how, ten, how intense this reads against the offender. But from another angle, it reads as the impassioned protectiveness of God for those precious to him. It's God's version of do not mess with my kids. And any way you slice it, it's pretty serious stuff. A millstone, if you don't know, is like this component of a simple net mechanism used for grinding wheat. In Jesus' context, there were actually two varieties of said millstone. One was like a small hand-driven kind that someone could just turn with their hands. The other was so big that a person couldn't push it, so a mule was used to kind of walk it around in a circle. Guess which one Jesus references here? 
He is it, literally, in Greek, he mentions a donkey millstone. And even his reference to the sea isn't just like anywhere in the ocean. It's literally in the middle of the vast open ocean. So Jesus is nothing if not vivid with his word imagery. And he goes on, verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So again, yikes. We can and should read this as a scathing warning against those who damage the faith of other people, but we should also read it as a fiery, protective love of Jesus and God the Father who takes the hurting of people very seriously. So Jesus is not passive or emotionless about those who hurt others and hurt their faith. He uses words and metaphors so strong that most of us would never use them. I would never say, it'd be better off if this guy drowned with a big rock around his neck. But Jesus says that kind of thing. And the woe that Jesus pronounces is not just an angry type of thing. There's actually a kind of heartbroken lament in the language. The heart of God breaks for both the victim and the victimizer. The woe is a lament. And keep reading, verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. So this is a teaching, if you remember, we've already seen in Jesus' manifesto for kingdom living, the Sermon on the Mount. In that teaching, it was specifically arranged, the whole cut off your self-mutilation stuff, cut off your arms and legs, gouge out your own eyeball. eyeball. In the Sermon on the Mount, it was arranged to protect women against the objectifying lust of men. But here, Jesus repurposed that same graphic imagery to protect those of impressionable faith. Bruner writes this, Jesus' way of approaching the problem of hurting other people's faith is severe and death-dealing. He commands us to look at what is hurting faith in ourselves and others and to kill it. Jesus' approach to such problem is not to humor them. It is to cut them out immediately and throw them as far away as possible. So the whole millstone around the neck image is here more specifically grounded in the concept of hell or something the New Testament calls the second death or more consistently through the New Testament, destruction. And it is for Jesus a very real, very serious consideration. And so his warning is in love for the offender and in love for the offended. Love in the mind of Jesus requires ruthless self-awareness and ruthless self-control. And that's what this is all about, after all, is love. So here we have the three self-denials of love. Love limits its freedom, love redirects its ambition, and love does not hurt another's faith. Now notice, each type of love, required by Jesus, by the way, necessitates swimming against the current of our own innate dispositions. In other words, Christ-likeness is not natural. And so we're often bad at it. I'm often bad at it, which seems like a pretty troubling thing to realize, let alone acknowledge. But the good news is that we don't do this by ourselves. So Jesus ends on a note of encouragement via poetic beauty. Look down at verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. 
Now, pause for a moment. The whole angel thing seems weird, but Jesus is essentially alluding to Old Testament imagery of God's throne room where God is the king and he has a royal court. And he's saying that these undesirable people, these little ones, they are close to the king. He watches over them personally. They have immediate unfettered access to the royal throne of God. In other words, they they have friends in high places, so to speak, which is great news for them, bad news for those who would hurt them. And our consideration for misleading even a single person of lowly status should be great because God's consideration for a single person of lowly status is great. And to elaborate, Jesus ends with a story. Verse 12, he says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. It's a beautiful parable. I I use this parable to teach my kids about the love of God. So one night I remember my son asking me how much Jesus loved him, and so I described this story. I told him, If you were a little lamb and you lived with a family of a hundred sheep and one day you wandered off because you weren't listening and you were misbehaving and you got lost in the forest and it was your fault, Jesus would go running into the forest to find you even if all 99 other sheep were just fine. Jesus is contrasting human logic with the immeasurable love of the Father. So for you and I, it's not enough to look down or to not look down on these little ones. Jesus chases after them, and he is teaching his apprentices to do the very same thing. All right, we're almost done. I want to end by talking for a moment about what God wants versus what God gets. So hang on with me for just a couple more minutes. Throughout the Bible, we're presented with a consistent, unflinching portrait of a God with clear purpose and desire. God wants things, and he articulates them pretty clearly. He wants to create. He wants to love. He wants to live in loving collaboration and union with people, specifically. He wants to lead and love and rule his good creation together with human beings. But God doesn't get that, if you know the story, at least not always. And here, Jesus points out that God doesn't want a single person to perish, that is, to be lost to the kingdom, or to drown in the sea with a millstone around their neck, or to be thrown into hell, or to be judged and found guilty, or to face destruction. God does not want that for a single person. But elsewhere, Jesus has said that wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and listen, many enter through it. Meaning God wants all people to be rescued, redeemed, restored, but Not all people are willing to be rescued and redeemed and restored. So those willing to be rescued, their very willingness is precious to God. It is something to be safeguarded and protected. They are worth pursuing and chasing and leaving a secure and reputable crowd of many to chase after the insecure and scandalous one that got away. Now, many of you I know full well are those secure and reputable 99. You are the ones that are hanging around. You are the faithful, good for you. You are not less valuable to the Father. In fact, continue in faithfulness. It is of high value in the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke's gospel, 
Jesus tells this really similar story about a father who welcomes a son who had wandered away from home to do evil. And in that story, the son comes home. There's celebration. There's another son that never left, and he's ticked off. He's like, why are we having a party for this guy? And the father says, and I quote, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. So if you are amongst the 99, the faithful, who you're doing your best, obviously with success and failure, obviously with trial and error, obviously with ups and downs, but if you are walking in faithfulness to Jesus, the same is true of you. You are always with the Father. Everything he has is yours. And Jesus has entrusted you with the role of shepherding as well doesn't mean that you're going to become a pastor, that you have to be, go to seminary, or that you have to learn how to lead a community or something like that. It means that in your lives, the people around you may wander from faith and that the community of faith imitates the good shepherd by chasing after and pursuing the one who wanders off from the family. I know some of you guys have done that already and are doing that in your own lives, in, even in your own Van City community. Some of you have seen lost sheep return to the family, and others of you have mourned the one who did not come back, and both are appropriate, the celebration and the mourning. Unrepentance, not coming home, in other words, to Jesus is a very serious thing. But repentance to Jesus and really to us, is actually a scandalous thing. When we of low status, of our own foolish volition, wander from the Father's care and from the family of God, from the flock, in other words, God will abandon his post and chase after us. One scholar put it like this. Human thinking says, let it go. We have 99. The Father's thinking is, there were 100 where is my one? The surprising element in the joy of chapter 18, verse 13, is that the lost one, the careless and errant one, was not loved less by God for causing all this trouble, but almost loved even more. When I read words like these from King Jesus, how foolish I often feel for spending much of my life wondering if God does indeed love me. And I've seen more and more as the years burn away that God loves, yes, God loves with wild, incredible passion that the world would deem foolish and naive, that that is how the God of the universe operates. Counterintuitive, the, the scriptures call it the foolishness of God. God himself loves like this. He is jealous for his children's love. He is fiercely protective of them. And when we run from him, he pursues us. He is not willing that even one be lost. So to that, we say, amen, Lord Jesus. Teach us to love the same way and to chase the same way. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.